0: Veterinary Vertex, a podcast of the AVMA Journals. I'm editor in chief, Dr. Lisa Fortier, and I'm joined by social media editor, Dr. Sarah
1: Wright. We're bringing you a special episode with our guest, Dr. Adam Rudinsky. Adam, we are so excited to speak with you today.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this opportunity.
1: Adam is an associate professor in small animal internal medicine at the Ohio State University College of Veterinary Medicine. Adam is one of the authors from our December Supplemental Issue, Emerging Topics in Nutrition, and in this episode, we're going to talk about Adam's manuscript, Nutritional Management is Superior to Metronidazole for Treatment of Acute Colitis in Dogs. Dr. Rudinsky, thank you again so much for joining us. My pleasure. Metronidazole is often thought as a first-line therapy for the treatment of diarrhea in dogs. What new information can our readers learn from your manuscripts?
2: Oh well that's a really good question kind of gets to the core of one of the interests I have which is um you know on the veterinary side we have this wonderful tool really of nutrition right it's it's very different than human medicine and and our, on our counterparts there and the core finding from our research study was that you actually had a benefit to nutrition compared to nutrition with metronidazole so there was actually a delay in acute colitis resolution if you added metronidazole into your regimen. So our big take home is really, you know, diet probably for most of these animals that have non-infectious acute colitis is really the way to go.
1: It's such an important topic. And I know we talked a little bit before the podcast started about how there are some differing views. That's why it's so nice that you do have this randomized controlled study out there now in JAPMAS. Hopefully our readers can read it and learn from it too. So thank you so much.
2: Yeah, and I, I think some of that stems from Right. Like if, if you think if you break metronidazole down, like I I jokingly, when I talk to vets about it, I put it up as the holy grail from Monty Python and the holy grail and say this is metronidazole. This is how we treat it in vet med. Right. It's the end all be all. But in uh, part of that came from this uh, concept of, yeah, it has antibacterial properties. Yeah, it has antiprotozole properties and then also these anti-inflammatory properties. But when you dive in and dig a little bit deeper with metronidazole, it is a very good antimicrobial. Uh, The downside is we don't actually see a lot of uh, enteropathogenic bacterial infections causing uh, acute colitis in these cases. It's also a good antiprotosol. But once again, if you don't have Giardia or something, for example, it's not really a good strategy. And the data for anti-inflammatory is really actually... Not that strong. It's just something that's been propagated uh, throughout this. So it's nice to take a dive into one of these conventional issues and then structure a study to really target that and tease it out.
1: We've talked a little bit in other podcast episodes too, how the most dangerous thing to do is to continue to do something just because it's always been done, not because there's Mm -hmm. like certain evidence behind it, et cetera. So again, it's really important information to put out there for our readers. So on a little bit of a different topic, I found it interesting that your co-authors are from different departments within your institution, and some are even from other institutions. How did you all collaborate throughout the research process, from conceptualization to publication?
2: Yeah, so that's an I think that's a, a wonderful question because that's really the wave of future, right? Anyone who's doing science at this point in time, you can't do it in a silo, right? I Yes, it was my project in the sense of like, I was lead on it and and designed it and those sorts of things. But without every other single name on that paper, I could not have gotten it over the finish line, right? So that team approach to science is super important. So uh, where that kind of really stems, and you'll see a lot of different projects that I personally am on are with the same group, because we have our research group here at Ohio State called CHIRP, which is the Comparative Compatibility and Intestinal Research Program. And uh, two of my co-authors, Dr. Janessa Winston and Dr. Val Parker, are both parts of that with a a few other faculty members here and elsewhere uh, as members as well. Uh, But that's kind of our our core research group. And then we have the expertise of saying, okay, hey, you know, Sally Perea and stuff at Royal Canin can design diets and look at the things that we want in those. And uh, Jeremy Luxall can do the statistics to make sure everything's valid and appropriate. And Jan and his group down at Texas A&M are experts in some of the Uh, dysbiosis measures that we used in the paper. So really you bring that all together and it's a 10 times better paper by getting that mixed expertise um, than if it was just me or uh, just another person uh, operating alone.
0: Yeah, that's so true, Adam. The other part that you touched on, but it's not really highlighted in what you're in either of this conversation is collaboration with industry is really, really Mm -hmm. important too. Yeah. You know, it's, it's getting your idea. It's not just your idea and your research, but that's how you can really bring it to the finish line and bring it to the patients and, and our, and our owners and clients.
2: I, I agree completely. And and specifically this project, like, uh, it, as, as, as is disclosed in the paper, the diets are manufactured by Royal Canin and, you know, like the the simple reality is even though nutritional management of gastrointestinal disease is one of my primary goals, I don't have a food lab here, right? Like, I don't have the ability to manufacture targeted uh, diets like that to to make these things happen. So, the support of program, uh, the support of our programs by companies like that, like you said, is not invaluable in pushing this field forward and bettering the health of all species.
0: Yeah, and nor should you have a food lab. You shouldn't need one, right? That's what industry is there for. (laughs) Exactly. Collaborations. It used to Hmm. be, you know, that those things were viewed as kind of dirty, you know, that Mm -hmm. you were, if you didn't have NIH funding or more of animal, then, you know, that then you had to go to industry. But that's really changed. And and it's really, I think it's great that you guys are highly collaborative with them. I always say to people like conflicts are and then people oh they have a conflict of interest well of course you do but conflicts are disclosed and
2: conflicts are meant to be managed so yeah and yeah. and i also think it's one of the things that yeah in addition to the full disclosure and being upfront about everything that also ties back to the quality of your study design right and then even like one of the things that i think in particular that royal Canaan let us do in this study which was wonderful is every single group was on a royal Canaan diet so regardless of the outcome right like It wasn't like they were throwing some other diet. It was all controlled. And and the setup, I think, really also brings a lot of authenticity to the results.
0: Yeah, that's fabulous. The other thing, your study is uh, a randomized controlled trial. Those are really hard. You know, like we don't see enough of those. Or we were just talking the other day about systematic reviews. We just don't see enough of those in veterinary medicine Mm -hmm. because they can be hard to do. Not only do you have a lot of collaborations collaborators on the manuscript, but it's also a a very high level, uh, evidence-based study. So for those folks that haven't done it before, how how do you look at randomized controlled trials and how do you really get them started? How do you, what, what would be your advice to somebody to try and get one going?
2: Yeah. So, uh, I think, well, one, I would encourage anyone to do it, right? Because like you said, that's exactly what our profession needs, regardless of whether you are a bovine practitioner or a feline practitioner or whatever. Uh, all areas of veterinary medicine need that high quality research. Um, if I were to say the main factor that has helped me here, it's our clinical trials support team, right? Now that's easier said than done. Not everyone has that. Uh, but it, you basically need to either work with a team that knows those things like we have here at Ohio State or build those collaborations and i think whether you're in a private practice setting or an academic setting as you can see by the spread of people on our paper people want to collaborate people want to help each other it's just a matter of making those links so figure out what you want to look into and then build your network around that so that you get those um so you get those types of uh, gaps that you might not have in your own practice or, or academic setting. In particular, what I found so useful for this type of study, when everything is blinded and we're doing follow-up and the scheduling is very controlled and all of that stuff, uh, having those dedicated people was really invaluable. And um, our lead... Uh, uh, one of the lead nurses that was on the project is actually a, in our manuscript because she was so intensively involved in in all steps of the the manuscript development as well. And like, she is so instrumental. That's Tamara Mathy in driving that forward because she can uh, organize that and allow me to stay completely out of that aspect and just be the blinded investigator looking at the uh, individual cases as they come in.
0: Yeah. If you have a clinical trial coordinator, you're really fortunate. It does make a big difference. The other thing I would add to that when, when I first started was make everything that you think you might want part of your, your SOP. So for me, it would be collecting joint fluid at the time, you know, at the time of surgery, every time you're doing that arthroscopy, that's part of your SOP and it gets frozen and stored and spun and all those things. And then it it doesn't disrupt the workflow and people don't have to, you know, you lose a lot less samples that way too.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I actually have some here. These are from other studies, but this is from a different study that we're doing right now on um, canine pancreatitis. But like these binders that are exactly like you said, it is like a cookbook recipe for baking, right? Where every single thing is outlined down to how you label the tube, how it's stored, where it's stored. Um, Yeah. So I think uh, an ounce of planning is worth a pound of uh, makeup at the end there. So that's super useful. and And the point to too, where you mentioned like it, it's nice if you have a clinical trial support team. Um, our group here does consulting work, right? So, like we've supported in terms of data management or other things like that, other research projects that aren't necessarily. 100% focused at Ohio State. And I know that's true of a lot of uh, clinical research offices and teams as well. So once again, emphasizing that if you build those relationships, you can get some of those benefits. Obviously, they're not uh, free charitable <laughs> benefits, but when you're writing the grant and getting in those um, those planning stages, uh, you can incorporate them into your, into your management.
1: So, Adam, you participated in two postdoctoral research fellowships after your residency training. Very impressive, by the way. When I was reading your bio, I was like, "Wow, that's so cool!" Especially what you were researching. How did your fellowship in microbial pathogenesis at Nationwide Children's Hospital change your perspective on one health?
2: Yeah, so a little background on that uh, fellowship. I, 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 when I was in my first fellowship with uh, at, here at Ohio State after my residency. I ended up meeting at one of our research conferences, a woman named Cheryl Justice, who became my mentor for my my second uh, fellowship there. And it presented a very unique opportunity, right? I, I had very much been in that veterinary chain of command, right? Vet school, internship, residency, masters, what have you, but all within a vet school and all very animal focused. And what was really nice about stepping into that world was Yeah, I was the occasional person who would get asked about an animal model or something like that, Um, but it was removed from it, right? So you kind of saw the mirror image of what I was used to and getting that balance. And then what I think it really taught me more than anything is actually then how to bridge that to truly be an equal one health uh, uh, interaction between those people that have traditionally been trained on a... Uh, a benchtop science background or on a human medical background or on a veterinary background and how you all integrate those. And even though it's not the topic of this, uh, this paper in Jab Marine now, one of the other areas um, and actually some of that work's been published in uh, AJVR um, on feline UPEC isolates originated from my work there in bridging those different fields. And another example of like, bringing human health professionals at Nationwide Children's to OSU to UCLA and kind of merging this all together.
1: That's amazing. It's such a unique experience. And you bring probably such a unique perspective, too, to your cases then. So how did that experience, too, shape the rest of your career, especially as a scientific writer and researcher?
2: Yeah. So I, I think the it, it definitely shapes shapes everything it it made me first stop and think like you know i i think the best clinician in the world is the clinician that knows what they don't know the best researcher in the world is the researcher that knows what they don't know and is willing to say it right always be weary of the person who has full confidence in everything and i think it was a good uh a good experience because once again, it showed me how little or how much like there were things that I was taking for granted or things that I wasn't necessarily looking at because my perspective was so uh, entrenched in, in the veterinary side. So I think it's it's created a much more open mind uh, in terms of how I approach problems, the people I seek to interrogate problems as I'm designing research and, and trying to answer these things. And it's really strengthened the breadth of my science, right? It, it's become less myopic and more comprehensive and really driving at those mechanistic kind of questions that we need to understand to help animals. And now, as that's translated into my day-to-day life and in my career, right, like uh, every grant I submit now is multi-institutional and uh, collaborative and and have these translational aspects because not only is that uh, helping us get funding, right, if I can sell this as beneficial to cats and uh, people, right, or, or what have you, um, but it also helps in terms of uh, helping both species, right, and, and fostering the links there and fostering uh, all the benefits that we get from each other.
1: How did you find the opportunity? And if we have any listeners that are interested, maybe to help their own research, what would you recommend to them in terms of finding these programs?
2: Uh, like postdoc fellowships? Um, so there's a lot that are out there. Um, the The key is, or, or the key things that I would do is find something you like, right? So if I tell you a little bit about my background, um, it was always gastrointestinal. Like I loved diarrhea from the get-go. In vet school, that was it. I'm I'm dedicated, right? But within that, it's bounced around a lot, right? And and I ultimately kind of settled on the fact that I like the microbiome, I like food um, and nutritional kind of management. And as I started doing that, I'm not a microbiome scientist. That's not my main area, right? But Dr. Winston, for example, who I work with on almost every project, Dr. Shukadolski at uh m work on a lot of projects with. They're experts in that area. So if you have, if you start finding those niches, right? That's how I started finding those. And then I started reaching out and saying, okay, well, who do I meet at a probiotic conference? And that's ultimately how I met Cheryl and got linked up through colleagues and then started talking to her. And you know, it it, it they just kind of fall into place. Um, I think I was in a unique situation because I was in an academic setting when those things happened, right? So it was breeding a lot of those situations just organically. I didn't really have to necessarily like fly across the world to go meet someone. Uh, so the other thing I would say is, like, one of the postdocs in uh, the chirp group right now uh, is actually a postdoc in fecal transplant medicine, and uh, we've had a couple different fecal fellows and postdocs in that, and that's something that gets posted as those jobs are available. um, But you may not always see those, right? If you're not paying attention to job postings or looking for them or the specific location. So the other thing you can do is say, okay, if you're like me and you loved diarrhea and you like nutrition, then you start saying, all right, well, who's looking at these projects and reach out now, right? If you're not in, in that setting, because Maybe in two years, we have that position open up or we have something else. And if not, maybe I can say, okay, well, hey, here's someone else's name at Florida or Georgia or or somewhere else that might be able to link you to something because you'd be surprised um, or or at least I think sometimes I'm surprised looking back when I was in my internship and residency, I was like, oh my gosh, these things are like terribly hard to find. How am I ever going to make this happen? And now that I'm on this side, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I hope someone applies to this position. Like, we got to see if we can find someone great for it. And, and we have found great people. But there, there's need on both sides. It's really just a question of, like, using that network, uh, meeting people, and um, reaching out to people. Because you'll find that the vast majority of people are actually very eager to help you rather than anything else.
1: That's great. Thanks for sharing. Now, back to your manuscript for one moment. What is the clinical take-home message from your work that you'd like other veterinarians to know?
2: Great. I'll, if I can, I'll answer that in two parts. So, one, there's if I if I take it a step back, right? Uh, I liken what we did with this paper very much to what was done thirty or twenty to thirty years ago with FIC, right? And that's why everyone either used to practice uh, by treating FIC with antibiotics or they were taught in vet school don't just give antibiotics to a cat with lower urinary signs. It's statistically more likely to be FIC than a UTI, right? But it took those initial works to switch that paradigm of just the blanket, here's antibiotics, here's antibiotics. And I think when we also look at how owners perceive things, I believe there is a perception that if you hand me this pill bottle, I think you're a good doctor. And if you say, here, feed this diet, I'm like, "Mm, what's that about? Right. So I think it comes down to uh, really educating our clients to understand the benefits of what we're finding here. And then also being open minded as clinicians, as we're reading this type of research to see that we're seeing a shift. Right. So I'm giving you a very long answer. So I apologize. But um, so if you look at the metronidazole data, right, there's two studies where metronidazole was compared to placebo. So, doing nothing at all. One of those studies showed a very modest benefit. The other one showed no difference in uh, response times. Every other time that nutraceuticals, fecal microbial transfer, or in this case, nutritional management has been compared to metronidazole, there's been an improved outcome with the other therapy. So, um probiotics as well it was just a combo where everyone got metronidazole so that one's a little bit of a different uh type of paper but um you know so that data is there and and we're moving so the take home if i go back to that is then uh we have these other therapies that are probably working uh better against it and this is one of those kind of shifting moments in in vet med i think where we're just seeing a different way of managing it and and kind of switching how we're looking at it and how we're educating our clients. The other half of it is I get a lot of like people that are like not believers, right? And I'm not saying you should never be prescribing metronidazole again in in your life, right? That's not the goal. That wasn't, there was no agenda of anti-metronidazole propaganda. What we don't want is metronidazole use unnecessarily, right? Because If I manage a non-infectious case with diet over metronidazole, I actually leave that gut healthier at the end of my treatment. Whereas, sure, I can't manage Giardia with diet, right? Like that's that's not going to work. So, um, the other take-home is really like a simple testing and screening for infectious disease will also, I think, as a clinician, provide you that confidence to say I'm going to use diet in this case. And trust in that. Or, hey, no, I actually do need to prescribe fenbendazole or something else to treat this parasite or, or that so Sorry, hopefully yeah. that answered your question, but
0: no, there I, I love both parts of that. Uh I also love the fecal fellow. Hey mom, yeah. hey dad, guess what I'm doing? I'm gonna go be a fecal fellow. <laughs> And, and I'll have to tell you, Adam, like, it couldn't have been more different for me. I remember going to vet school and it was fascinating, right? You had no idea all the cool mm-hmm. career paths that you could take. But the first time I smelled dog diarrhea, I was like, <laughs> I'm out. I'm going into large animal. <laughs> I am out of here. I was done. So you can have it all day long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll stick to the large animal side. Uh, the other thing I wanted to uh, thank you for is uh, serving on our scientific review board. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, of it course. really also shows a strong dedication to veterinary medicine and research and, and discovery. So for mm-hmm. the listeners that might not know, we just formed Jabman and AJVR's first scientific review board. And they're volunteers like Adam, uh, and they have agreed to review up to six manuscripts a, a year. Um, we're, we're always looking for more members and reviewers, so feel free to reach out. But it, it really is a labor of love, and we very much appreciate you.
2: And I think for anyone, if I, if you don't mind me adding one, it's, it's interesting. Like it's, it's super fun and it's impactful because doing reviews, you're helping other people. Like the reviews I get back on my papers are very, very helpful to me, right? It's different perspectives. So you can be that person for someone else, um, in terms of helping advance their research and then obviously helping just advance research in general.
0: Yeah, and now we offer continuing education credits for, for reviewers. Nice. So you can get, yeah, you can get up to two CE credits for uh, re- reviewing. I mean, it's it's a very scholarly activity, and, yeah. and most states accept it. So Yeah, for sure. Uh, away from all the science and reviewing and everything, we'd like to add a, a kind of a fun question, and Sarah and mm-hmm. I have learned a lot with this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> what is the oldest or the most unique thing in your desk drawer?
2: Um in the drawer or could it be on my desk it can be on your desk okay well i don't know if you can see because of the thing but this would probably be the most unique thing which that's not coming out well because the uh blur there but what it is my my initial mentor for my masters uh is a a, an internist named hen gilor and he also was more like you where he did not see the love of diarrhea in, in his life. So when I finished my residency and masters, he got me a framed prescription for fecal glitter capsules that you can take to, uh, glitterize your own feces. Um, so they're framed with the prescription and written out to me and and some glitter capsules in there. So I always look at that because it's, it's right there in my kind of like, um, diarrhea shrine on the top of my desk here.
1: (laughs) That's unique. We haven't gotten that one before, have we Sarah? (laughs) That is good. I was—we were talking about this, but we'll have to do some kind of compilation of everyone's answers because they're all so unique and <laughs> really fun. But yeah, that one might take the cake, I think. Yeah, um, yep. <laughs> well, that's awesome, though. But thank you so much again. You've been a wonderful guest, and it's been great hearing more about your work and why it's important, and also your background too, to help inspire the next generation of scholarly writers and researchers.
2: Sure. Thank you for having me.
1: You can read Dr. Rudinsky's manuscript in our December 2022 JAFMA Supplemental Issue, Emerging Topics in Nutrition, on our journal website. I'm Dr. Sarah Wright with Dr. Lisa Fortier. We want to thank each of you for joining us on this episode of the Veterinary Vertex podcast. We love sharing cutting-edge veterinary research with you, and we want to hear from you. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to.
0: Until next time, take care, and we'll see you soon.